0: Here at Calvary Chopper Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Praise God. It's good to see you guys here this morning. So glad that you've chosen to join us again and that we're back together here on another Sunday. You had a great week. Praise God for that. If it was a terrible week oh, you're in the right place, right? Praise God for that too, because he can use it and he is using it if you let him, using those things in your life for his glory and to bring about necessary change and transformation in your lives. And he's moving in our midst here this morning and we're blessed for it. We're going to continue this morning in our three-part series in Galatians 4, 4 through 7. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd encourage you to turn there this series as we lead up to Christmas is entitled God's Perfect Plan. And here, this Christmas season, we are looking beyond some of the more traditional Christmas passages in an effort to go deeper and to consider some of the theology of Christmas, to consider consider some of the doctrines that is what we believe about who God is and what it is that he's done for us. It's not to say that the traditional Christmas narrative is not important by any stretch of the imagination, but for us to go a little deeper and understand some of what we believe and why we believe it, I think is important for us. Last week, we considered how Jesus came at the perfect point in history to fulfill God's perfect plan. We looked at how time, the time was just right, spiritually culturally, politically, we saw how circumstances, the circumstances surrounding Christ's birth were aligned just perfectly for the arrival of our Messiah, Jesus. And we we see in that how truly it was something that only God could have done, no one else. And so this week then, today, we are going to consider how Jesus was the perfect person as we look to the second half of Galatians 4, verse 4, and we'll begin to unpack the miracle of the incarnation. Now, I will tell you right now, there are going to be a lot of scripture references today as we sort of search the scriptures to consider what it has to say about this topic. And so I'd encourage you to take notes, write these down, revisit them this week in your own personal study or at life groups. And, and, um, With that, we'll go ahead and and jump into it here. If you would, just agree with me once more in prayer. Lord, as we open your word, we recognize that it is just that. It's your word, and we're grateful for it. We are thankful, Lord, that you've given it to us. It's your love letter to us. It's greater than any book, Lord, this world has ever known. It's alive, living, active, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, I pray that it would pierce our hearts here this morning and bring necessary. The Latin word, the, the first part of it there, in, meaning into and the latter part, caro or carn, equaling flesh. And so this word incarnation describes how Jesus, God the Son, left heaven and came to earth as a human, as a little baby. In Galatians chapter 4, specifically verses 1 through 3, Paul tells us why the incarnation was necessary. Why did God have to do this? Let's read together from Galatians 4, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so we, verse 3, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Paul says here that we were under bondage. As we considered last week, we know here that Paul is saying two things. The first of which is that... Going back to Exodus chapter 20, God gave the law of Moses to the Jewish people. Now, God did not give the law of Moses as a standard by which they would be saved. That is to say, here's all the things that you need to do in order to be saved, but rather he gave it to show them that no man could keep God's law and earn their salvation. We were born under the law. And the law is a tool that helps us to see that we are hopelessly lost in sin. Paul said that the law served as a tutor, a schoolmaster, a teacher to help him see that he could not measure up to God's standard. And so when we realize then that we are lost in sin, we then know that we need a savior. We need someone who can overcome what we cannot on our own. It's this truth, it's those three verses that then leads to verses 4 through 7. It helps to bring understanding then, as Paul writes in verses 4 through 7, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Praise God. This is one of those passages of scripture that... that If you are able to have a right understanding, you read those verses and you begin to get it, you should have this response of, wow, that, that God, the creator God of the universe would make a way for me to become an heir, a child of him. What we learn in this is that God the Father has responded to our greatest need by sending his son, Jesus, to become a man so that he could die in our place and open the door for us to become children of God. There is before each and every one of us on a daily basis, the reality that someone has come to die for you. You know that today. Do you live in light of that truth? Do you rejoice in that? Do you celebrate that? Jesus came to earth, the perfect person to fulfill God's perfect plan. Let's read again together. Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Notice that Paul gives us here three reasons that make Jesus the perfect person to fulfill God's perfect plan. One, he says that Jesus is the son of God. Two, he says that Jesus was born of a woman. I would add, just like us. And three, Jesus was born under the law, once again, just like us. We're going to consider this morning each of these in detail, starting there with the first. Once again, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son. When it was the right time, God sent his son. The first thing we see here in this truth that God sent forth his son is that Jesus was sent by God. He was sent. This phrase sent forth is the Greek word ex apostelo, or another word, the root word there, apostle, which means one who is sent off. And so this word here means to send forth on a mission. It's used 11 times in the New Testament, and each time it refers to someone who was located in one place and then went to or was sent to another place. Why is that important for us to understand? When we understand this, we then know that Jesus was already alive, He was in a particular place and was being sent to another place. He did not come into existence in or through Mary's womb. Rather, he is eternal. He's existed from before time began. John tells us this in the Gospel of John in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He writes, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. God. He was in the beginning with God. That's Jesus. He was there with God before time began. In verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. It's another way of saying we don't have any of this without Jesus. All of creation was made by him, and through him, and for him. And God worked through Jesus in all of this. Now, you might ask, why was he called the Word and not Jesus? Well, Jesus was the name to be given when he came into this world. Recall the angel had said to Mary, you shall have a son and you shall call his name Jesus. But before this, he had a name. It is the Word in Greek Logos, it's more than a name that captures a concept and an essence that Jesus is the essential word of God. He is the personal wisdom and power in union with God. He is God's minister in creation. He's the governor of the universe. He's the cause of all the world's life, both physical and ethical. And language can't quite capture who God is. Thus, we have many names, many attributes that help us to understand, if even in some small way, who God is. It's like we sang this morning, Emmanuel, God with us, God Almighty, wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, name after name after name in Scripture, all with the intention of saying, this is who God is. The word helps to capture that. And this word, he was sent from his place in heaven, given by God for us. That's what the prophet told us. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 9, verse 6, Isaiah 9, 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That's right. Given. You know The definition of given is, it means to take what one has and bestow it upon another. I want you to think about that for a moment, that Jesus, the Son of God, belongs to God, is God, but is given, is bestowed upon you. Jesus was with the Father in heaven, but at just the right time, God gave him to mankind as a gift. He was given to you, friends. I fear that far too often the weight of that is lost upon us. Have you ever gotten a really good gift? This time of year, we think a lot about gifts, don't we? You might have something on your list that you're thinking about. Something that you'd like. Maybe you like to give gifts. You can't wait to see the person's reaction when they're overwhelmed by your generosity. Think of whatever gift you've ever received. Any earthly gift. The the greatest one that you've ever received. I can think back to when I was a child. the, The different gifts that I got. How I felt about it. How excited I was about it. Every one of those gifts. Every gift that's received and given here on the horizontal earthly gifts. Pale in comparison to the gift that is the creator God of the universe. saying, I'm giving myself for you. So Jesus was sent forth by God. And he existed there with God for all time. And he is God's son. And what we must understand is that sonship always implies a shared nature. So he's not only with God, and scripture declares that he is God, and that he shares the same nature. Just as you share the same nature as your earthly father, your father being flesh, you too have flesh. We get insight into this throughout scripture. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 3.16, it helps to, to give us some clarity of the Trinity. How is it this Godhead? God, the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. How does this work? And, and Paul writes, and without controversy, 1 Timothy 3.16, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, Received up in glory. He says that the Godhead was manifested in the flesh. But it was the, the son. Paul writes elsewhere in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. He says he being Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 2 9. For in him that is Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Not just some. Not just a part. All the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Philippians in in chapter two, in the latter part of verse six and beginning of verse seven, Paul writes, and he, Jesus, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Not lesser, equal. But he made himself of no reputation. He willingly embodied flesh. Jesus is fully God. He shares the same nature as God the Father, and he shares his glory. The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 1, verse 3, who, again, Jesus, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus declares this glory himself in John chapter 17. In verse 5, this is the beginning of his high priestly prayer. We've considered it much recently, but the latter portion where Jesus prays specifically for his church that we would be unified. It's at the beginning of this prayer that Jesus himself says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is Jesus himself saying, I had that glory but he willingly humbled himself to take on flesh. He's speaking here of his pre-incarnate state. Before he came as a baby, he previously lived in heaven with the Father where he sat upon a throne receiving the praises of angels. As Jesus put it, he shared the Father's glory. But the Father sent him to earth gave him for us with a very specific mission to fulfill. A mission that required that he become one of us. And that leads us to the second reason that Jesus was the perfect person to redeem mankind. Because he was not just in the fullness of time sent forth by God as God's son, but secondly, born of a woman. It was born of a woman. Jesus, while fully God, was also fully human. And this was necessary. This was needed. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 tells us, Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful And faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. If Jesus were not like us, he could not represent us before God. It was necessary that he became like us. On Wednesday nights, we're going through our study of Revelation. We just recently completed the study of the third letter of 7 written to the seven churches it's in the second letter specifically although jesus says this in uh, in a few different places but especially in that second letter written to the church in smyrna the church that was experiencing tremendous persecution people there were dying in the name of Jesus, they were not renouncing their faith, even as many still today do, people who willingly give their lives to stand for the truth of the gospel. But it's in that letter written to these people who are suffering that I find something so profound. And it's in the words of Jesus, he says to this church, I know. I know. He knows because he's experienced it himself. Because he willingly took on flesh and has endured the things that we ourselves have endured. We have a Savior who understands. Have any of you ever been in a situation before, facing a trial in life, going through a difficult circumstance, and a well-intentioned individual, and, and know this, that this individual, if they've said something to you, it's because they care about you, they do love you, but they, in an effort to comfort you, have suggested that they know what you're going through, but the reality is, and you know this, they don't. They don't get it. They don't understand. They don't know. The person's not bad for this, but you find their intended comfort to fall short a little bit because they just not experienced the specific thing that you are going through. Anybody ever happened to you? Okay, yeah, I see some heads nodding. What that paints a picture for us of is the fact that on the horizontal, human relationships, although necessary, used by God, an important thing, we cannot be everything for everybody. If we are seeking to find comfort and to find peace and to find whatever it is right here in the horizontal, we are going to come up short. There are going to be times in your life where the greatest of human friendships and partnerships and relationships will fall short. But know that in those moments, you have a Savior, a God in heaven who says, I know. I understand. I know everything about you. I know your heart. I know your mind. I know right where you're at and the difficulties that you're going through. I am not some far off God who's unknowing. No, I've I've come down, I've been a part of it, I've gone through it. I know. I know. That's an incredible truth that should bring comfort to us. He gets it, he understands the big things and the small things. In all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. For him to have mercy towards us would be for him to understand and experience. Verse 18 of Hebrews chapter 2, For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. He is like us. He has experienced what we experience, yet without sin. Hebrews 4:15. Now, how is it that he became like us? John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He added flesh. He put on flesh. He added a second nature. Jesus did not stop being God. He added humanity. Anyone who wants to say that Jesus was just a good man, you have a false understanding of who Jesus was and is. Anyone who wants to say that Jesus was just fully God and just pretended to be a man, you have a false understanding of who Jesus was and is. He did not set aside his divine nature. He added to it human nature. The theological term that's used to describe this is a theanthropus. It essentially means that Jesus is the only God-man. Isn't it an interesting thing how many movies and books and comics and all these different things and and, and historic cultures and the historic Greek culture, everybody wants to come up with this idea of a God-man. It's there within us. Our desire for him, for our savior. He's the one, the only one. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, we read, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. Now, some people look at this passage and have wrongly interpreted it using this word form to suggest that it was just kind of like. God, like man, But form here speaks of nature. Paul uses it twice. The first time he says that Jesus' original nature was God. And he says that he, Jesus was equal with God. So understand that, equal with God, not lesser, equal. And the second time he says that Jesus took on an additional nature, which was human. Likeness speaks of identity in the original language. He became a man To identify with mankind. Jesus set aside the privileges of deity without setting aside his deity. He took upon himself humanity. He had a human body, a human mind, and human emotions. All of it. Luke writes in a pretty incredible truth in Luke chapter 2 verse 52 one of those that we can oftentimes just kind of read over but he writes there in Luke 252 he says Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men Jesus increased in wisdom what does that mean it means he learned he learned he grew he obtained knowledge and setting aside the privilege of his deity, he gave himself to this life and did it perfectly. But he learned to our young people here today. This is one of those moments where Jesus looks to you and he says, I know. Right? Think about it. How many of you got exams this week? Anybody? Exams? I see one of my students back there and you didn't put up your hand. There it is. Boom. You got an exam this week. Jesus says, I know. I mean, isn't that cool? Right? When you think on Wednesday nights when we have family prayer time and, and, and everybody's sharing just the different things that they're going through and here, pray about this or pray about that. And, and our young people are saying, hey, I got a lot of schoolwork this week and will you pray? And, and then maybe there's other people amongst us at the that time that's like, I'm not going to say anything. My prayer request isn't important. Well, stop doing that. It is important because we have a Savior in heaven who knows all these little details and He cares about them. Even schoolwork and tests because He experienced it too and we serve a God who knows those things. He knew dependence. John chapter 5 verse 19, most assuredly I say to you the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does the son also does in like manner. So in Jesus, we have the glory of the Father and the character and behavior of the Father so that, and this is one of the awesome things that happens because Jesus came and dwelt among us, is that the more we know Jesus, the more we know God the Father. One whom no man has seen, but if you see Jesus, if you know Jesus, if we look at his life as recorded in the scriptures, we know more of God. So then in Galatians chapter 4, Paul said that Jesus was the perfect person to redeem mankind because he is God. But Paul also said that Jesus is the perfect person to redeem mankind because he is human. Both. Fully God, fully man, absolutely necessary. And when we understand that, when we come to a right understanding of that truth, when we don't seek to deny one or the other, then we can easily understand Paul's third reason, which is this. Jesus is the perfect person to redeem mankind because he did what no one else was able to do. And he could do this, and he was the only one who could do this because he was fully God and fully man. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Let's go back to the beginning for a moment in Genesis chapter 3. Adam, the first man who represented the entire human race, willingly transgressed God's command and the entire human race fell under a curse. That's what happened. And since a man caused humanity to fall under sin's curse, a man had to atone for sin to break the curse. Listen, if we, if we leave this place and we go out and we talk to some different people and you encounter a handful of people who say that, hey, I'm, I'm an atheist or you know, I don't believe in all that or I'm not religious or this or that. You're not going to have a hard time finding a whole bunch of people that agree on one common thing. This world is messed up. Amen? Anybody who says otherwise, well, you got your head in the sand. It's a messed up place. Doesn't mean there's not awesome things. Doesn't mean there's not beautiful things. Doesn't mean that we don't see evidence of God in all of creation, and that there aren't moments of uh, of just wonderful experiences, which, by the way, when you experience something awesome, you should find yourself going, well, this is cool because what God has for me is going to be even better right? So we don't need to be all bummed and disappointed about it, but at least to see it for what it is and to say, this world seems cursed. And that's been understood throughout history, regardless of what you want to attribute it to. It's cursed. The problem is, since that time, man has been trying to reverse the curse, oftentimes through their own efforts, their own strength, obeying religious laws, doing whatever they can do to try and make things better on their own. But even the best of us and our greatest attempts and our greatest successes fail at some point and certainly fall short of what God can do. So then Jesus comes, adding flesh to his deity to bring life. The law having brought death, the law serving to help people say and see I'm lost. I'm hopeless. I need a savior. 1 Corinthians 1545 tells us, and so it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. Jesus coming recognizing that Satan has sought to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus said, Ah, but I have come to give life, to give it abundantly. Jesus was born under this very law. Jesus was born a Jewish male. He followed the law. He was circumcised on the eighth day. The firstborn male of his family, his parents, followed the law. They waited 33 days from the time of his circumcision and then dedicated him to the Lord and the temple. He grew up going to synagogue and reading the Torah, the five books of Moses, the Tanakh, the Old Testament in Hebrew and Aramaic. He learned the languages. He was taught under the teachings of rabbis rabbis that overemphasized the outward confirmation to the law but neglected the inward transformation of the spirit you see the jewish people sought to become righteous through outward means conforming to the law but jesus taught them that it was impossible you can't do it he gave us the sermon on the mount with chimpacks all of us even still today where he took god's law and he sought to explain god's standard He said things like, if you hate your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. If you lust after someone, you've committed adultery in your heart. Anyone here ever hated somebody? Anyone ever looked with lust? The fact of the matter is, every one of us have broken God's law over and over and over again. And on one hand, this left, when Jesus began to teach in this way, and even still today, it can leave someone feeling hopeless, as it should. Because what that then does, on the other hand, is open the door of every person's heart to Jesus, to their need for a Savior. Did Jesus come to destroy all of this? Did he come to do away with the law? Did he come to say, oh, no, you don't need to worry about any of that? No. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, one yacht or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. This wasn't a compliment to the scribes and Pharisees. This was Jesus saying, the standard is above that. At this particular time, if you were going to look to somebody who maybe was keeping the law, you would look at the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus says, look, you've got to be better than that. The question then comes before us here this morning, does your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? Are you keeping the law perfectly? is that you this morning? Are you convincing yourself that you're righteous, that you're good enough? Every now and then you encounter these people are out there, right? You encounter the person who's like, man, I haven't sinned in 20 years. And you're like, you are full of it. You just sinned. You just did it. You just did it. You just demonstrated pride right in front of me. And then they're like, oh man. 20 years, just like that, right? No, you've been sinning the whole time. You could, this morning, you look to your left, look to your right, look over and say, sinner. (laughs) It's the truth. We are. If you go around and say, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. Well, yes, you are. And so you need a savior. Amen. You need a savior. You can't do it, not on your own, not on your own merits. Paul wrote Romans 5, 12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread all men because all sinned, but praise God, it doesn't stop there because of what he's done so that Paul could write a few verses later in verse 20 and 21, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound because of the law, you know that you sinned. And so where sin abounded, then grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Praise God. First Peter 1:19, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Our perfect sacrifice. Paul says that at the perfect point, God sent a perfect person named Jesus to become mankind's savior. He was the perfect person for the job because he was fully God and fully man. He had to be the sinless God of the universe. Fully God in order to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Only God could fulfill his law. No one else could do that. But he had to be fully human Incarnate, embodied in flesh, in order to be a true substitutionary sacrifice to redeem all of mankind. This was the perfect purpose for God's perfect plan. And we'll consider that one next Sunday. As we wrap things up this morning, let me ask you this here as we close Jesus, God's Son, sent for us, born of a woman under the law. Came as the one we could never be. You could never be. To do what we could never do. And The question this morning is have you accepted that? Have you embraced him and what he has done? Or are you still trying to do the impossible? Are you still trying to save yourself? To be righteous enough through your own works. Your own actions. Maybe you're ignoring your sinful condition. Believe in your own truth, as the world likes to say today. There's only one truth. He is Jesus. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.